Part Two, Chapter Four of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, by Abner Doubleday, Part Two, Chapter Four, Part B. The first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Wednesday, July first, eighteen sixty-three. After Hall's battery was driven back, no other artillery occupied the ground for some time. Then General Wadsworth borrowed Caliph's regular battery from the cavalry, and posted it in rear of the position Hall had occupied. When the remainder of the division came up, Captain Reynolds' Battery L of the 1st New York Artillery, as already stated, was sent to assist Caliph in keeping down the fire of two rebel batteries on the ridge to the west. But when Ewell's artillery also opened, the cross-fire became too severe. Caliph was withdrawn, and Reynolds was severely wounded. The rebel batteries soon after ceased firing for the time being, and at Wadsworth's request, Colonel Wainwright, chief of artillery to the First Corps, posted a section of Reynolds' battery, under Lieutenant Wilbur, on Seminary Ridge, south of the railroad cut. Stewart's Battery B, 4th United States, being on a line north of the cut. Cooper's battery was directed to meet Ewell's attack from the north, and Stevens' 5th Main Battery was retained behind the seminary in reserve. Barlow's division on the right, and Schimmelfennig's on the left, formed somewhat hastily against Ewell, whose line of battle faced south. Barlow rested his right on a wooded knoll constituting part of the western bank of Rock Creek. As there was an open country to the east he considered that flank secure, for no enemy was in sight then, and if they came from that direction there would be time to make fresh dispositions. After the formation there was an interval of a quarter of a mile between their left and the First Corps, which might have been avoided by placing the two divisions further apart. This was a serious thing to me, for the attempt to fill this interval, and prevent the enemy from penetrating there, lengthened and weakened my line, and used up my reserves. It seems to me that the Eleventh Corps was too far out. It would have been better, in my opinion, if the left had been echeloned in rear of the right of the First Corps, and its right had rested on the strong brick buildings with stone foundations at the almshouse. The enemy then could not have turned the right without compromising the safety of the turning column, and endangering his communications, a movement he would hardly like to make, especially as he did not know what troops might be coming up. Still, they had a preponderating force, and as their whole army was concentrating on Gettysburg, it was not possible to keep them back for any great length of time, unless the 1st and 11th Corps were heavily reinforced. The position of our forces and those of the enemy will be best understood by a reference to the map on page 125. About 2 p.m., after the Eleventh Corps line was formed, General Howard rode over, inspected, and approved it. He also examined my position and gave orders, in case I was forced to retreat, to fall back to Cemetery Hill. I think this was the first and only order I received from him during the day. Rowe's division of five brigades was formed across Seminary Ridge, facing south, with Iverson on the right, supported by Daniel and O'Neill in the center, and Doles on the left, 
Ramsur being in reserve. Iverson was sent to attack the First Corps on Seminary Ridge, and O'Neill and Doles went forward about 2.45 p.m. to keep back the Eleventh Corps. When the two latter became fairly engaged in front, about 3.30 p.m., Early came up with his whole division and struck the Union right. This decided the battle in favor of the enemy. Barlow had advanced with Van Gilsa's brigade, had driven back Ewell's skirmish line, and with the aid of Wilkinson's battery was preparing to hold the Carlisle Road. He was not aware that Early was approaching, and saw Doles's advance with pleasure, for he felt confident he could swing his right around and envelop Dole's left, a manoeuvre which could hardly fail to be successful. Schimmelfennig now threw forward von Amberg's brigade to intervene between O'Neill and Dole's, and to strike the right flank of the latter, but Dole's avoided the blow by a rapid change of front. This necessarily exposed his left to Barlow, who could not take advantage of it, as he was unexpectedly assailed by Early's division on his own right, which was enveloped, and in great danger. His men fought gallantly, and Gordon, who attacked them, says, made stern resistance until the rebels were within fifty paces of them. As Barlow was shot down, and their right flank enveloped, they were forced to retreat to the town. This isolated von Amberg's brigade, and Dole's claims to have captured the greater portion of it. The retrograde movement of the Eleventh Corps necessarily exposed the right flank of the first to attacks from O'Neill and Ramsur. Howard sent forward Custer's brigade, of Steinwehr's division, to cover the retreat of the Eleventh Corps, but its force was too small to be effective. Its flanks were soon turned by Hayes and Hoke's brigades of Early's division, and it was forced back with the rest. We will now go back to the First Corps and describe what took place there while these events were transpiring. When the wide interval between the First and Eleventh Corps was brought to my notice by Colonel Bankhead of my staff, I detached Baxter's brigade of Robinson's division to fill it. This brigade moved promptly and took post on Cutler's right, but before it could form across the intervening space, O'Neill's brigade assailed its right flank, and subsequently its left, and Baxter was forced to change front alternately to meet these attacks. He repulsed O'Neill, but found his left flank again exposed to an attack from Iverson, who was advancing in that direction. He now went forward and took shelter behind a stone fence on the Mummusburg Road, which protected his right flank, while an angle in the fence which turned in a southwesterly direction covered his front. As his men lay down behind the fence, Iverson's brigade came very close up, not knowing our troops were there. Baxter's men sprang to their feet and delivered a most deadly volley at very short range, which left five hundred of Iverson's men dead and wounded, and so demoralized them that all gave themselves up as prisoners. One regiment, however, after stopping our firing by putting up a white flag, slipped away and escaped. This destructive effort was not caused by Baxter alone, for he was aided by Cutler's brigade, which was thrown forward on Iverson's right flank, by the fire of our batteries, and the distant fire from Stones's brigade. So long as the latter held his position, his line, with that of Cutler and Robinson's division, constituted a demi-bastion and curtain, and every force that entered the angle suffered severely. Rhodes, in his report, speaks of it as 
a murderous enfilade and reverse fire, to which, in addition to the direct fire it encountered, Daniel's brigade had been subject to from the time it commenced its final advance. A note here. General Robinson states that these changes of front were made by his orders, and under his personal supervision. End of the note. While Iverson was making his attack, Rhodes sent one of his reserve brigades, the one just referred to, that of Daniel, against Stone. This joined Davis's brigade of Hill's Corps, and the two charged on Stone's three little regiments. Stone threw forward one of these, the 149th Pennsylvania, under Lieutenant Colonel Dwight, to the railroad cut, where they were partially sheltered. Colonel Dana's regiment, the 143rd Pennsylvania, was posted on the road in rear of Dwight, and to the right. When I saw this movement I thought it a very bold one, but its results were satisfactory. Two volleys and a bayonet charge by Dwight drove Daniel back for the time being. In this attack Colonel Stone was severely wounded, and the command of his brigade devolved upon Colonel Wister of the 150th Pennsylvania. A note here. Dwight was a hard fighter, and not averse to plain speaking. Once, when Secretary of War Stanton had determined to grant no more passes to go down to the army, Dwight applied for permission for an old man to visit his dying son. The request was refused, whereupon Dwight said, "'My name is Dwight, Walton Dwight, Lieutenant Colonel of the 149th Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers. You can dismiss me from the service as soon as you like.' but I am going to tell you what I think of you." And he expressed himself in terms far from complimentary, whereupon Stanton rescinded the order and gave him the pass. End of the note. This attack should have been simultaneous with one from the nearest troops of Hill's Corps, but the latter were lying down in a sheltered position, and Daniel urged them in vain to go forward. Not being able to force his way in front on account of Dwight's position in the railroad cut, Daniel brought artillery to enfilade it, and threw the 32nd North Carolina across it. The cut being no longer tenable, Dwight retreated to the road and formed on Dana's left. Daniel had been originally ordered to protect Iverson's right, but Iverson swung his right around without notifying Daniel, and thus dislocated the line. Ramseur now came forward to aid Iverson, and I sent Paul's brigade of Robinson's division, which was preceded by Robinson in person, to assist Baxter, and if possible, to fill the interval between the First and Eleventh Corps, for I feared the enemy would penetrate there and turn my right flank. When Paul's brigade arrived, Baxter was out of ammunition, but proceeded to refill his cartridge boxes from those of the dead and wounded. General Howard has stated that the interval referred to was filled by Dilger's and Wheeler's batteries of the Eleventh Corps, but a glance at the official map will show that, before Paul's advance, these batteries were several hundred yards distant from the First Corps. Another attack was now made from the north and west by both Daniel's and Davis's brigades. Colonel Wister faced his own regiment, under Lieutenant Colonel Hudekoper, to the west and the other two regiments to the north. The enemy was again repulsed by two volleys and a gallant bayonet charge, led by Hurtekoper, who lost an arm in the fight. Colonel Wister having been shot through the face, the command devolved upon Colonel Dana, another veteran of the Mexican War. 
There had been a great lack of coordination in these assaults, for they were independent movements, each repulsed in its turn. The last attack, however, against Worcester, extended by Brockenborough's and Pettigrew's brigades to Morrow's front in the woods, but Morrow held on firmly to his position. I now sent my last reserve, the 151st Pennsylvania, under Lieutenant Colonel McFarlane, to take post between Stone's and Biddle's brigades. So far I had done all that was possible to defend my front, but circumstances were becoming desperate. My line was very thin and weak, and my last reserve had been thrown in. As we had positive information that the entire rebel army was coming on, it was evident enough that we could not contend any longer unless some other corps came to our assistance. I had previously sent an aide, Lieutenant Slagle, to ask General Howard to reinforce me from Steinwehr's division, but he declined to do so. I now sent my adjutant general, Halstead, to reiterate the request, or to obtain for me an order to retreat, as it was impossible for me to remain where I was, in the face of the constantly increasing forces which were approaching from the west. Howard insisted that Halstead mistook rail fences for troops in the distance. The lorgnettes of his staff finally convinced him of his error. He still, however, refused to order me to retire, but sent Halstead off to find Buford's cavalry and order it to report to me. The First Corps had suffered severely in these encounters, but by this additional delay, and the overwhelming odds against us, it was almost totally sacrificed. General Wadsworth reported half of his men were killed or wounded, and Raleigh's division suffered in the same proportion. Hardly a field officer remained unhurt. After five color-bearers of the 24th Michigan Volunteers had fallen, Colonel Morrow took the flag in his own hands, but was immediately prostrated. A private then seized it, and, although mortally wounded, still held it firmly in his grasp. Similar instances occurred all along the line. General Robinson had two horses shot under him. He reported a loss of 1,667 out of 2,500. Buford was in a distant part of the field, with Devon's brigade, covering the retreat of the Eleventh Corps, and already had all he could attend to. He expressed himself in unequivocal terms at the idea that he could keep back Hill's entire corps with Gamble's cavalry brigade alone. As Howard seemed to have little or no confidence in his troops on Cemetery Hill, he was perhaps justified in retaining them in line there for the moral effect they would produce. About the time the Eleventh Corps gave way on the right, the Confederate forces made their final advance in double lines, backed by strong reserves, and it was impossible for the few men left in the First Corps to keep them back, especially as Pender's large division overlapped our left for a quarter of a mile. Robinson's right was turned, and General Paul was shot through both eyes in the effort to stem the tide. They could not contend against Ramsur in front, and O'Neill on the flank at the same time. Under these circumstances it became a pretty serious question how to extricate the First Corps and save its artillery, before it was entirely surrounded and captured. Biddle, Morrow, and Dana were all forced back from the ridge they had defended so long, which bordered Willoughby's run. Each brigade was flanked, and Stone's men under Dana were assailed in front and on both flanks. Yet even then Daniel speaks of the severe fighting which took place before he could win the position. 
What was left of the First Corps after all this slaughter rallied on Seminary Ridge. Many of the men entered a semicircular rail entrenchment which I had caused to be thrown up early in the day, and held that for a time by lying down and firing over the pile of rails. The enemy were now closing in on us from the south, west, and north, and still no orders came to retreat. Buford arrived about this time, and perceiving that Perrin's brigade, in swinging around to envelop our left, exposed its right flank, I directed him to charge. He reconnoitred the position they held, but did not carry out the order. I do not know why. It was said afterward he found the fences to be an impediment, but he rendered essential service by dismounting his men and throwing them into a grove south of the Fairfield Road, where they opened a severe fire, which checked the rebel advance, and prevented them from cutting us off from our direct line of retreat to Cemetery Hill. The first long line that came on us from the west was swept away by our artillery, which fired with very destructive effect, taking the rebel line en écharpe. Although the Confederates advanced in such force, our men still made strong resistance around the seminary, and by the aid of our artillery, which was most effective, beat back and almost destroyed the first line of Scales' brigade, wounding both Scales and Pender. The former states that he arrived within seventy-five feet of the guns, and adds, Here the fire was most severe. Every field officer but one was killed or wounded. The brigade halted in some confusion to return the fire. My adjutant-generals Baird and Halstead, and my aides Lee, Martin, Slagle, Jones, and Lambden, had hot work carrying orders at this time. It is a marvel that any of them survived the storm of bullets that swept the field. Robinson was forced back toward the seminary, but halted notwithstanding the pressure upon him, and formed line to save Stuart's battery north of the railroad cut, which had remained too long, and was in danger of being captured. Cutler's brigade in the meantime had formed behind the railroad grating to face the men who were pursuing the Eleventh Corps. This show of force had a happy effect, for it caused the enemy in that direction to halt and throw out a skirmish line, and the delay enabled the artillery, soon after, to pass through the interval between Cutler on the north and Buford's cavalry on the south. As the enemy were closing in upon us, and crashes of musketry came from my right and left, I had little hope of saving my guns, but I threw my headquarters guard, under Captain Glenn of the 149th Pennsylvania, into the seminary, and kept the right of Scales' brigade back twenty minutes longer, while their left was held by Baxter's brigade of Robinson's division, enabling the few remaining troops, ambulances, and artillery to retreat in comparative safety. It became necessary, however, to abandon one gun of Captain Reynolds's battery as several of the horses were shot, and there was no time to disengage them from the piece. Three broken and damaged caisson bodies were also left behind. The danger at this time came principally from Hoke's and Hayes' brigades, which were making their way into the town on the eastern side, threatening to cut us off from Cemetery Hill. The troops in front of the seminary were stayed by the firm attitude of Buford's cavalry, and made a bend in their line apparently with a view to form square. I waited until the artillery had gone, and then rode back to the town with my staff. As we passed through the streets, pale and frightened women came out and offered us coffee and food, 
and implored us not to abandon them. Colonel Livingston of my staff, who had been sent on a message, came back to the seminary, not knowing that we had left. He says the enemy were advancing toward the crest very cautiously, evidently under the impression there was an ambuscade waiting for them there. They were also forming against cavalry. On the way I must have met an aide that Howard says he sent to me with orders to retreat, but I do not remember receiving any message of the kind. I observe that Howard, in his account of the battle, claims to have handled the 1st and 11th Corps from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m., but at 11 a.m. his corps was away back on the road, and did not arrive until about 1 p.m. The map previously given on page 125 demonstrates that we were a mere advance guard of the army, and shows the impossibility of our defending Gettysburg for any length of time. The First Corps was broken and defeated, but not dismayed. There were but few left, but they showed the true spirit of soldiers. They walked leisurely from the seminary to the town, and did not run. I remember seeing Hall's battery and the 6th Wisconsin Regiment halt from time to time to face the enemy, and fire down the streets. Both Doles and Ramsey claimed to have had sharp encounters there. Many of the Eleventh Corps, and part of Robinson's division, which had been far out, were captured in the attempt to reach Steinwehr's division on Cemetery Hill, which was the rallying point. When I arrived there, I found General Howard, surrounded by his staff, awaiting us at the main gate of the cemetery. He made arrangements to hold the road which led up from the town, and which diverged to Baltimore and Taneytown, by directing me to post the First Corps on the left in the cemetery, while he assembled the Eleventh Corps on the right. Soon after he rode over to ask me, in case his own men, Steinwehr's division, deserted their guns, to be in readiness to defend them. General Schurz about this time was busily engaging in rallying his men, and did all that was possible to encourage them to form line again. I understood they were told that Sigil had just arrived and assumed command, a fiction thought justifiable under the circumstances. It seemed to me that the discredit that attached to them, after Chancellorsville, had in a measure injured their morale and esprit de corps, for they were rallied with great difficulty. Around 3.30 p.m. General Hancock arrived with orders from General Meade to supersede Howard. Congress had passed a law authorizing the President to put any general over any other superior to rank if, in his judgment, the good of the service demanded it and General Meade now assumed this power in the name of the President. Owing to the false dispatch Howard had sent early in the day, Meade must have been under the impression that the First Corps had fled without fighting. More than half of them, however, lay dead and wounded on the field, and hardly a field officer had escaped. Hancock being his junior, Howard was naturally unwilling to submit to his authority, and, according to Captain Halstead of my staff, who was present, refused to do so. Howard stated in a subsequent account of the battle that he merely regarded General Hancock as a staff officer acting for General Meade. He says, General Hancock greeted me in his usual frank and cordial manner and used these words, General Meade has sent me to represent him on the field. I replied, All right, Hancock, this is no time for talking. You take the left of the pike, and I will arrange these troops to the right. 
I noticed that he sent Wadsworth's division, without consulting me, to the right of the Eleventh Corps to Culp's Hill, but as it was just the thing to do, I made no objection. He adds that Hancock did not really relieve him until 7 p.m. Hancock, however, denies that he told Howard he was merely acting as a staff officer. He says he assumed absolute command at 3.30 p.m. I know he rode over to me and told me he was in command of the field, and directed me to send a regiment to the right, and I sent Wadsworth's division there, as my regiments were reduced to the size of companies. Hancock was much pleased with the ridge we were on, as a defensive position, and considered it admirably adapted for a battlefield. Its gentle slopes for artillery, its stone fences and rocky boulders to shelter infantry, and its ragged but commanding eminences on either flank, where far-reaching batteries could be posted, were great advantages. It covered the principal roads to Washington and Baltimore, and its convex shape, enabling troops to reinforce with celerity any point of the line from the centre, or by moving along the cord of this arc, was probably the cause of our final success. The enemy, on the contrary, having a concave order of battle, was obliged to move troops much longer distances to support any part of his line, and could not communicate orders rapidly, nor could the different corps cooperate promptly with each other. It was Hancock's recommendation that caused Meade to concentrate his army on this ridge, but Howard received the thanks of Congress for selecting the position. He doubtless did see its advantages, and recommended it to Hancock. The latter immediately took measures to hold it as a battleground for the army, while Howard merely used the cemetery as a rallying point for his defeated troops. Hancock occupied all the prominent points, and disposed the little cavalry and infantry he had in such a way as to impress the enemy with the idea that heavy reinforcements had come up. By occupying Culp's Hill, on the right, with Wadsworth's brigade, and posting the cavalry on the left to take up a good deal of space, he made a show of strength not warranted by the facts. Both Hill and Ewell had received some stunning blows during the day, and were disposed to be cautious. They, therefore, did not press forward and take the heights, as they could easily have done at this time, but not so readily after an hour's delay, for then Sickles' corps from Emmitsburg and Slocum's corps from two taverns began to approach the position. The two rebel divisions of Anderson and Johnson, however, arrived about dusk, which would have still given the enemy a great numerical superiority. General Lee reached the field before Hancock came, and watched the retreat of the First and Eleventh Corps, and Hancock's movements and dispositions through his field-glass. He was not deceived by this show of force, and sent a recommendation, not an order, to Ewell to follow us up. But Ewell, in the exercise of his discretion as a corps commander, did not do so. He had lost three thousand men, and both he and Hill were under orders not to bring on a general engagement. In fact, they had had all the fighting they desired for the time being. Colonel Campbell Brown, of Ewell's staff, states that the latter was preparing to move forward against the height when a false report induced him to send Gordon's brigade to reinforce Smith's brigade on his extreme left, to meet a supposed Union advance in that direction. 
The absence of these two brigades decided him to wait for the arrival of Johnson's division before taking further action. When the latter came up, Slocum and Sickles were on the ground, and the opportunity for a successful attack had passed. In sending Hancock forward with such ample powers, Meade virtually appointed him commander-in-chief for the time being, for he was authorized to say where we would fight, and when, and how. In the present instance, in accordance with his recommendation, orders were immediately sent out for the army to concentrate on Cemetery Ridge. Two-thirds of the Third Corps, and all of the Twelfth, came up, and by six o'clock the position became tolerably secure. Stannard's 2nd Vermont Brigade also arrived, and as they formed part of my command, reported to me for duty, a very welcome reinforcement to my shattered division. Sickles had taken the responsibility of joining us without orders, knowing that we were hard-pressed. His command prolonged the line of the 1st Corps to the left. Slocum's Corps, the 12th, was posted as a reserve also on the left. Hancock now relinquished the command of the field to Slocum, and rode back to Taneytown to confer with Meade, and explain his reasons for choosing the battlefield. Longstreet's corps soon arrived and joined Ewell and Hill, so that the whole rebel army was ready to act against us the next morning, with the exception of Pickett's division. At the close of the day, General John Newton rode up, and took charge of the First Corps by order of General Meade and I resumed the command of my division. Several incidents occurred during the severe struggle of the first day which are worthy of record. Colonel Wheelock of the 97th New York was cut off during the retreat of Robinson's division, and took refuge in a house. A rebel lieutenant entered and called upon him to surrender his sword. This he declined to do, whereupon the lieutenant called in several of his men, formed them in line, took out his watch, and said to the colonel, "'You are an old grey-headed man, and I dislike to kill you. But if you don't give up that sword in five minutes, I shall order these men to blow your brains out.' When the time was up, the colonel still refused to surrender. A sudden tumult at the door, caused by some prisoners attempting to escape, called the lieutenant off for a moment. When he returned, the colonel had given his sword to a girl in the house who had asked him for it, and she secreted it between two mattresses. He was then marched to the rear, but being negligently guarded, escaped the same night and returned to his regiment. Another occurrence recalls Browning's celebrated poem of An Incident at Ratisbon. An officer of the 6th Wisconsin approached Lieutenant Colonel Dawes, the commander of the regiment, after the sharp fight in the railroad cut. The colonel supposed, from the firm and erect attitude of the man, that he came to report for orders of some kind. But the compressed lips told a different story. With a great effort the officer said, "'Tell them at home I died like a man and a soldier.' He threw open his breast, displayed a ghastly wound, and dropped dead at the colonel's feet. Another incident was related to me at the time, but owing to our hurried movements and the vicissitudes of the battle, I have never had an opportunity to verify it. It was said that during the retreat of the artillery, one piece of Stuart's battery did not limber up as soon as the others. A rebel officer rushed forward, placed his hand upon it, and presenting a pistol at the back of the driver, 
directed him not to drive off with the piece. The latter did so, however, received the ball in his body, caught up with the battery, and then fell dead. We lay on our arms that night among the tombs at the cemetery, so suggestive of the shortness of life and the nothingness of fame, but the men were little disposed to moralize on themes like these, and were too much exhausted to think of anything but much-needed rest. End of chapter.